0: The Duke's Mystery by Andrew Forrester, pseudonym for James Redding Ware, eighteen thirty two to nineteen oh nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Tomlinson. Little more than five years ago. A series of robberies on a grand scale was perpetrated at the west end of London. There was hardly a tradesman of note who did not suffer from these depredations, which for a long while baffled all the skill and vigilance of the police. After a lapse of perhaps six months from the formation of the belief that these robberies were the result of a concerted action, By the rascaldom of the metropolis, the victims and their friends formed themselves into a committee and I was retained to investigate the affair. As the matter had by this time assumed great importance, I employed five or six assistants and systematically went to work. The police were also on the alert and special instructions were given from Scotland Yard that they should cooperate with me or practically, I may say, act under my instructions. It would be tedious to relate all the disguises and stratagems which I assumed and devised. It must suffice to say that half a dozen men went through more variations in their appearance than the chameleon and were nearly or quite ubiquitous during the investigation. I saw that a gang had to be crushed. I knew that success or failure was but an issue of time and money. On the former I could give and get as much as the associated tradesmen would pay for. Of the latter there would, I believed, be no stint. The parties affected and liable to be affected by the operations of the gang were prepared to lay out all the cash needful to secure the punishment of the criminals. The job was not a light one. We made a few mistakes, to the injury, however, of no one who had a character worth keeping. We got at times on wrong tracks. We were often on the heels of the thieves and yet failed to grasp them. We were none of us faint-hearted or lacking in patience. Each trip only made us walk the more carefully. Each blunder only made us wary. Each divergence only made us examine the supposed clues with greater nicety. One morning a police constable and one of my men came to me with news. We have a clue, sir, said the police constable, U-99. That's well. What is it? I observed. At least we think we have, said my assistant. I told him of it. I found it out, added the constable. No, don't say that. I had most to do with it. How do you make that out? Well, how much did you know about it before I told you of it? And how much did you know when you told me of it? I saw that there was a pretty quarrel brewing between this pair of worthies, and I tried to stop it, but that was not so easy a task as the reader may at first be inclined to suppose. If I put a restraint upon my assistant for the sake of peace, I might be incidentally puffing up the constable's vanity and wantonly injuring the laudable pride of my own staff. If I were attempted to curb the policeman, I might drive him off to Scotland Yard, where the clue would be followed up, and my own professional credit with the tradesman injured. I must put up with a little of this altercation and endeavour to soothe the irritation of both. The fact is that somebody, an omnibus driver, I believe, had told the police officer that something he was accustomed to see was a jolly rum affair. The policeman, being on the beat along which my man had to travel and knowing him, repeated his information and echoed the busman's opinion in his own vernacular. My assistant joined in the opinion already expressed and went beyond it. It is a rum affair, as you say. Observed my man. I think he added that it's a clue to what we very particularly want to find out. You come up to the governor with me tomorrow, when you're off duty, and I'll introduce you. If we turn it to account, man, he'll not be unhandsome. He'll make it worth your while. That I warrant. They then chatted over the business and I dare say my assistant let the officer into the secret of our instructions far enough to aid his comprehension of the gravity of the effects to which this clue might lead. What then was this clue? I dare say asked the always impatient reader. It was a small matter. It did not seem to point directly at the information I wanted, but many a real clue has not been more definite or reliable than that now to be followed to its end. It was a little nut which required cracking. There might be in it the kernel I wanted, or there might not. With nothing like regularity of time or periodicity, but with great frequency, a shabby hack brougham might be seen about or, after dusk, proceeding along a road leading through a western reach of the metropolis into the most picturesque western suburb. My clue began with the vehicle at the north-eastern corner of the Green Park and ended just on the eastern entrance to the village. It was a suspicious fact that this hack brougham was not driven by the same man throughout the entire distance. One driver was met about halfway on the road when he alighted from the box and handed the whip to the person, always the same, who met him. The brougham was one of those registered at Somerset House as a cab. It was a private vehicle which appeared like the property of some indigent postmaster or jobber. Where could this vehicle go to and come from? Among the difficulties in our case was that of tracing the goods. It was, I confess, not a little remarkable that no part of the goods could be traced. We had searched all the most notorious fences. I do not think there was one known place in which goods of the kind in question would be brought, that we had not examined. Could this broom be the means of conveying the plunder in small quantities to and from its place of concealment to the place or places of conversion into money? Those were questions we determined to solve. A diligent watch was set at stages from the green park. Next evening the carriage did not present itself, nor the next but on the third evening it was seen to emerge from a lane in Piccadilly near to a street in which there is an inferior livery stable. It was now followed and kept in sight during its entire journey. I saw the driver changed. I critically scanned the hirsute visage of the rider. Just outside the village, on the high road, there stood, and yet stands, a cottage residence, in not the finest state, with coach-house and stabling for more carriages and horses than the occupants seemed to make use of. The house was, I may also explain, shut out from the view of travellers by a close wooden paling, a high gate and a tall, dense, leafy hedge. At this cottage the brougham stopped, the rider alighted and the servant placed the horse and the vehicle in the outbuildings allotted to them, which were entered by the rear. All this looked to me very suspicious. I determined, however, to pursue my inquiries. There was not yet enough evidence, in my own opinion, to justify an application for a search warrant and less justification for anyone's arrest on a criminal charge. Inquiries in the village and neighbourhood elicited not much but the few scraps of fact we did get tended to fortify a suspicion that here was a depot of the plunder. The tradespeople were pumped, but those wells of gossip or scandal were nearly dry. The truth was, this cottage neither excited remark by ostentation, nor the reverse. What it required, it ordered and paid for. The trade done with its inmates by the shopkeepers who were honoured with their patronage, was not large enough to arouse the envy of their rivals. It may astonish some people who are tormented by scandal to know that rumour may be either avoided or manipulated if you know how to go about the task. While I was engaged in these inquiries with two of my assistants, the man who had the words with the policeman, as described, had another, and what he called a jolly row, with that officer. The matter was, I believe, through this, mentioned at the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police and the authorities took it up. An active sergeant of the detective police called upon me and asked for information, which I thought myself scarcely at liberty to refuse to give, so gave it. He forthwith set to work and got warrants to search the premises and arrest the inmates.' The time he selected for pouncing on the suspects was twelve at night. That evening the shabby brougham turned out of the livery stables, wended its way through slush and traffic along Piccadilly, and at about the usual spot the driver was changed. Away the brougham went again at a slightly accelerated pace, as though the horse's head was lightened. The party alighted at the cottage, and the stable was occupied as before. At half-past twelve o'clock, a body of police effected an entrance into the cottage by the rear. The whole of the small household was aroused. Great was the consternation of Miss Goodwin, and her brother was nearly killed by alarm. Of the rest, not much different can be said. Groom and coachman, one person, housekeeper and general servant, also one person, who completed the human establishment, were awfully frightened. The highly intelligent sergeant insisted upon ransacking the house, searching the stables and exploring the garden. In the meantime, the lady, gentleman and servants were told to consider themselves in custody. In vain, the gentleman protested against this outrage and sometimes gently threatened to bring down all the vengeance of the law upon his sister's tormentors. The sergeant treated the threat with disdain and ridiculed the claim of his prisoner to kinship with Miss Goodwin. All entreaties, menaces, expostulations and threats were answered by references to his duty or intimations that he knew what he was about. The search and exploration revealed nothing. The officer was sorely disappointed, but not yet discomforted. He saw that, at all events, he was safe if he went on, and that if he turned back he might expose himself to the charge of negligence. There was enough that was wrong, more than sufficient that was mysterious, to cover any excess of vigilance or any stretch of duty. So on he resolved to go. When Mr. Goodwin was told that he must accompany the officer as his prisoner and the lady must also share that inconvenience, they again put forth every form of remonstrance. All were useless. The officer was inexorable and unbelieving. He rudely expressed his disbelief of the assertion that the fair tenant of the cottage was a pure and innocent young lady of small independent estate, and that the visitor was her brother and guardian. Those explanations, he said, might do for the magistrate tomorrow, but they would not do for the police. There was no getting out of the awful mess. Mister and Miss Goodwin were removed by the sergeant under his warrants. To the chief metropolitan police station and there confined in vulgar cells. At times during the wretched journey to London, the prisoners were defiant and at others they sank into despair. Once on the way to the metropolis, the lady remarked to her companion, Never mind, dear George, we're not thieves. They have searched my house in every part, but they have found nothing. Now, observed the officer. Don't say anything that'll injure yourselves while I'm with you. I don't want you to criminate yourselves. Only mind, I shall give all that I hear as evidence, and I don't mind saying that I don't like the look of things. Found nothing? Well, if that sort of talk ain't thieves, patter, I don't know what is. I ain't found nothing yet, but if I get a remand, won't I find nothing? Mr. Goodwin shuddered. Miss Goodwin was eloquent in the form of denunciation. The gentleman, by the time of the arrival of the party at the station house, had recovered his self-possession. He demanded the means of communicating with the solicitor. This was afforded him. He chose the name of a well-known criminal practitioner, one of the cleverest and one of the most respectable of his class. The professional man recognised his client. He had before been employed as the agent of that client's family solicitor in a prosecution. Within ten minutes after the arrival of the lawyer at the station, the door of Mr Goodwin's cell was opened, and that gentleman with his attorney was shown into the head private apartment of the officer who lives on the premises. Miss Goodwin was also looked after with as much tenderness during her stay in this urban hostelry. After a short further interview between the attorney and gentleman and a few words with the lady in compulsory waiting, a conference was held between the magistrate, his learned clerk and the attorney. Mr and Miss Goodwin were then next shown into his worship's private room, and the brother and sister were liberated on their own recognisances. Nothing further was done in the case against the occupants of the suburban cottage, Nothing was done by the lady and gentleman against any other person for setting the law in motion against them. The vigilant sergeant got promoted. On what theory and by what influences let the reader guess? Was it as a reward for past clever and prudent service? Was it the price of perpetual silence? Was it the seal upon a mystery? I cannot explain why the sergeant was thus dealt with but as much of some other things as I can properly explain, I will. First, let me say that I had no further interference by the police with my plans for the detection of the real thieves and that I hunted them down to conviction. In the second place, I may inform the reader that Mr Goodwin was no other than an alias for his grace, the Duke of no matter where, a nobleman who boasts of a long pedigree and whose own father was not a little proud of the historic traditions of the house of no matter where. The living Duke has a large rent roll an almost infinitesimal portion of which goes to Miss Goodwin, who, although not a sister, is in very intimate relationship towards him. He has reasons of his own, I dare say, for the quiet or as I should say, mysterious manner in which his visits to the cottage in the western suburb was shrouded. End of the Duke's Mystery by Andrew Forrester Recording by Peter Tomlinson